0: Take your Bible and turn to Job chapter 1 while you're turning there. uh, I'll say uh, I planned my series out kind of a a ways in the future and had been intending to come to Job for some time. Uh, Did not know that by God's mercy and providence it would be in the middle of a pandemic. But yeah, that is what he has seen fit to do. We'll be here. Um, I, I am. Nowhere near as gifted a preacher as John Calvin, who would Calvin preach something like a hundred and something sermons out of Job. I'm not even going to attempt that. I'm going to attempt eight, which is a big task for me. Uh, And then we will, Lord willing, be going to the Gospel of Matthew afterward. uh, Books that we have not studied uh, as a church. So, uh, the Book of Job, chapters. um, Well, I'm going to go one and two. I got time, I'm going fast. And there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them and when the days of the feast had run their course Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said... The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans came upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another one and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless man and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. We'll stop there. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would give life and light to your word and to our hearts. We recognize your word is perfect. We are not. We fall far short. Give us understanding. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. It was was one of those days, wasn't it? I imagine we've all said that kind of concept in in some form or fashion at some point in our lives. Like, whew, I had a doozy today. You know, maybe traffic was bad. You got stuck in a traffic jam. Maybe 77 was closed down for an accident. Maybe your boss was just, whew, they're on a tear. and Man, what a day. Maybe you just worked so hard you didn't even get a chance to sit down at all. Your feet are hurting, your legs are hurting, and, and it feels like you didn't get anything done. You're just stressed out. What a day. I, I would suggest that that is a good category for Christians to have to think about our days. is Some days are good days and some days are hard days. I think Ecclesiastes deals with that. There are different sorts of days, and the seasons of life that God has placed us in, it's important to recognize that and to understand. Corona days look a little different than days did last spring. Certainly, the weather does. I'm thankful, though, that I think for most of us, that when we read of Job's day, whoo, what a day! That day in chapter 1, a day that I can't relate to and I'm so thankful to have what in perhaps in, in kind of amongst normal human experience, the worst paragraph of interactions that you could possibly imagine. Going from being the wealthiest man in your country to one of the poorest men in your country in one conversation. Losing your children in one conversation. Losing all prospects for the future in one conversation. Whew! What a day! I like how one of the great realities in the book of Job is is how honestly it deals with that kind of range of experience in human life and acknowledging the depth of pain and difficulty that we are confronted with, acknowledging the hurt and suffering and, and how the Bible does not shy away from the hard parts of life. You know, there's a, a stream of Christianity that I think is tragically wrong that thinks that Christians are only supposed to smile all the time and uh, are always supposed to have bright and happy eyes and we're not allowed to cry and we're not allowed to grieve and we're not allowed to suffer. And I'm like, have you ever read the book of Job or Isaiah or Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, pick any of the prophets? This book particularly deals with, with confronting difficulty in a, a spectacular fashion. And I, I think probably perhaps the most interesting is that Job really isn't, at this point at least, informed in any way of the conversation that's taking place in heaven. Again, one of those things that I mean, we know, but just forget that when, what he's looking at is what he thinks is the worst day in human history. How unlucky. How is the righteous man going to respond with the worst case of unluckiness, of suffering, of difficulty, all in one go? We're going to look at kind of three big overarching principles in the the movement, the development of these two chapters But as we do, we start with just a little bit of a kind of setting. I know intro sermons can sometimes get bogged down in these, but to give you just a little bit, as best we can tell, this book is referring to a man who lives approximately at the same time of Abraham. Uh, Job is most likely, again, as best we can tell, there's a bunch of reasons. His his wealth is categorized by animals. That fits the time of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The uh, geography, we think, is probably from the eastern half of Israel, perhaps uh, even where the Edomites end up living. And we know just a little bit about Job. We know he's not an Israelite because Israel doesn't really exist yet, most likely. If it does, it's in just a small, tiny little collection of family. We do know, however, that he knows the God of Israel. Uh, He is uh, very clear throughout the book that when he worships, he's not worshiping a a nameless or faceless generic God. He's also not worshiping a pagan God of the pagan people. This is a man who knows the God of the Bible. He loves him and he he respects him and he worships him. And and just as a a brief note, just fun things of how, how could Job have even found out about this? Well, the the wonderful things about not visualizing our human history uh, is we forget that if you actually map out the lifespans and the the chronologies of the scriptures, if there's no gaps, which is is likely in most places, uh, Abraham and Noah lived at the same time. In fact, actually, Abraham was most likely in the neighborhood of 70 when Noah died. Like, that's crazy to think about. Uh, That Shem died when Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when Jacob was 50, was the same time that Shem died. So you think about people who actually were on the ark were alive at the same time as Jacob. You could easily imagine that Job has found out about who this God is from either Noah or one of his neighbors or one of his children or grandchildren. It's easy to imagine that, I mean, there were only eight people alive and the population has increased rapidly, uh, but he's probably heard from one of them. It's also interesting that as he's uh, developed in this, he's understood who the God of the Bible is, uh, but his relationship with that God is, I would say, fairly simple. He doesn't understand all of the intricacies of the Bible, namely because uh, the vast majority of it has not been written. He doesn't understand the sacrificial system, the way that it would be developed in uh, Leviticus and in Numbers and such, because those haven't happened yet. His relationship is very simple. I'm again thinking this is probably taking place chronologically somewhere in the neighborhood of Genesis chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. So when it comes time to look at the caliber of this man, we see he's a righteous man. And and the verses 1 through 5 kind of help us to see what that righteousness looks like. One, he is incredibly wealthy, which the the author is intending for us to understand as a mark of God's favor. I mean, even Satan acknowledges that. That the wealth that, that Job has is a mark of God's favor. And if you do the kind of math on that, this is an obscene amount of wealth. Again, he's probably, as the text says, the richest man and probably east of the Jordan River. An immense amount of fortune, but not just an immense amount of fortune. You see a little bit of the character of the man also and how his children relate. They have a great love of family. Even to the point that we get to see one of their family habits is either, it could be on birthdays, not sure. It could be that they just have a regular hangout day scheduled. But what they do is when it comes time to hang out or when it comes time to celebrate or have a good time, all the kids get together without mom and dad. And they have a big old party and they enjoy each other and they celebrate and they love their family. Again, a, a marker of the righteousness of Job is that his family is a well-ordered family. Again, think about the requirements for office in the church. The officer of a church has to be able to manage his family well or he can't be an officer in the church. Here, Job has been marked as one who's done that so that even his children later are called young people, uh, they love each other and delight in each other. But even on top of that, he has this incredibly tender heart toward evil and not wanting to um, offend the living and true God so that even after these children have these celebrations and uh, get-togethers and rejoicing, he's saying, you know, I I don't think they necessarily have even done anything wrong, but just in case, I'm going to be concerned about it. We'll offer burnt offerings on their account just in case because I love God and I love my children and I wish to honor him. He's a holy man. He's a a delightful man, which really sets the stage, verses 1 through 5, set the stage for the main conflict being introduced. The main challenge is introduced in verses 6 through 12 where Satan shows up. And this is where we're going to hone in on our first kind of key thing to understand. God in His holy court with many of His angels around Him seems to have a day in which uh, is open for visitors, so to speak. And the angels come in and visit and with them in some fashion, some way, Satan comes. The evil one, the accuser is his technical term here. And he comes in, uh, the adversary, comes in before God and has a conversation. And I find so much comfort in God's commentary on Job before the evil one. I think it showcases God's heart and showcases something spectacular. I want you to see as we look at this is um, (laughs) the Lord is committed to rejoicing in the successes of his people. The Lord is committed to rejoicing in the successes of his people. Uh, Verse 6, Satan here is before the Lord. And verse 7, the Lord opens up this conversation with uh, where you come from. And Satan gives, I I think it's probably um, a sarcastic answer. As if you don't know where I'm coming from. As if you don't know where I've been. But I've been walking to and fro on the earth where you've kind of condemned me. Because I'm not welcome here anymore. But whatever, that's on you God. I think it's disrespectful. And the Lord kind of leads with verse 8, have you seen Job? Have you seen my servant Job? He he is righteous, he's holy, there's no one like him. Have you seen Job? And as a a young man, when I read this passage, I always struggled because it, it seemed like God was being boastful. And it seemed like a really odd thing to do that God would be boastful about Job being righteous when Job's a mess, because all people are a mess. I didn't really understand this passage, I don't think, until I had children. And to think of my precious little children when they were little, and I'd be like, have you seen my child walk? Now, how well did they walk when they were, you know, tiny, itty-bitty little things? Walking consisted of, what, three steps and then falling over on their face and crying? But as a parent, what do we do? We get, we get so excited about even the, the, the tiniest, little, most minute successes because we love that child, we're excited in that child, we're invested in that child, and even their most minute victories we celebrate to the ends of the earth. It's one of the great joys of talking with first-time parents. You get to see their excitement and how it bubbles over and, and some of the things where they're like, you know, celebrating how they ate food and when the kid tried to eat cake, they smeared it all over their face and it was adorable and we loved it and they're like, yes, that is so adorable and we love it. It's not really as adorable and we love it when husbands do that, right? When they try to eat their cake and smear it all over their face and rub it in their ears and put it in their hair and then, you know, it's a mess. That's not interesting. That's not amusing. We don't like it. and Why? Because uh, we certainly understand they're more mature they're supposed to, in theory more mature, uh, and supposed to behave a little bit differently. You see, I think sometimes we misread this text to think that God is making some sort of blanket proclamation that Job is perfect, and I think that's a misread of what God is saying. God is like the parent of the young child saying, look at my child walking. Look at my child riding their bike. Look at my child clipping themselves in their car seat for the first time. Look at my child feeding themselves. Knowing it's not perfect, but we're going to celebrate every single victory for what it is. There's a sweet optimism. To God's commentary on Job. There's a sweet, sweet optimism to it of, of, look at my man, look at how blameless he is, look at how righteous he is. Now, God knows his heart. God knows what goes on in the inside of Job's mind, and we're going to find out later. It's not entirely perfect. It's not like there hasn't been evil there or isn't evil there. But the Lord has invested in the victories of his people and he celebrates and he gets excited over them. It's fatherly pride and joy. And I'll be honest, I really and truly, I think this is something the American church completely and totally fails at. Like, I don't think we have a category for this in most cases. We have been trained, many of us, to to have this just wonderfully critical eye towards our fellow saints. So that we are masters at sniffing out failures. Failures. We're masters at, at sorting out inconsistencies in others, in seeing hypocrisies in others, in celebrating their defeats, instead of rejoicing in the tiniest little victories. Again, I, I just I love to think about you know, if we were in this text and sitting there in heaven. And God said to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? He's blameless, he's righteous. How many of us in our own head would be going, yeah, but did you see what he did last week? I'm going to suggest that's that's probably how most of us think. Rather than being like, oh yeah, God, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, (laughs) I love Job, he's a great guy. Most of us would be going, but don't you remember this, God? I mean, I know you don't forget anything, but are you sure you're not making a mistake here? I' put it a touch more pointedly with the time I have. We are in grave danger as humans of having overly critical eyes toward the people of God, to be concerned with the sins of others and unable to celebrate their victories. and i would suggest that for some of us that's exactly how we see ourselves as well unable to rejoice in the tiniest of victories i love how in uh, first corinthians where it describes what love is patient kind we get those not self-seeking it always hopes it always hopes and I, I'm going to suggest lovingly that not to say that everyone needs to be an optimist about every situation because I don't think that's true. But I do think there is a biblical element of always being the optimist with the people of God. Because you're going to find that some of you are going to say, well, I'm not cynical, I'm a realist. You know, that's actually, that's exactly the answer that Satan gives. The accusation The condemnation that the devil brings, interestingly, is not um, some nasty, he just brings realism mixed with cynicism. Be very careful that we do not develop a more critical eye than the God who has redeemed us. You see, that's, again, where the devil comes in. Instead of rejoicing with what God rejoices in, God is pleased with Job. He's celebrating Job. Now, again, Job is is righteous and blameless kind of comparatively in the land. He's a a good and holy man, but he's not Christ. And yet God is rejoicing in who he is, like a, a father rejoicing in this child. And what does Satan come in with? He comes in with what we would, by today's standards, call realism. You realize the devil's critique is an accurate critique. Verse (laughs) 9, well, of course he's blameless. You've given him everything. You've protected him on every side. Of course he's blameless. He has your protection. He has your wealth. He has your blessing. He has no difficulty that he's ever had to confront. Well, of course he's righteous. If you just give him some difficulty, you'll see he's not going to bless you anymore. My friends, that is called realism. Mixed with a slight touch of cynicism. This is the second kind of thing that we, we hone in on is the accusations that the devil is bringing against the people of God. They're just realism mixed with cynicism. That's why they're so hurtful and so hard, is that they're not way off far out. They're not some terrible lie that you can sniff out immediately and go, well, That's obviously there's no element of truth to that, never ever in a million years. But they're the things that we hear and go, well, yeah, that's probably accurate. <laughs> But you see, what Satan has asked in this kind of complaint, in these questions, is actually far more devious, which is why I want us to be so careful against it. Because what he is in essence posing is, he's saying, look, Job rejoices in you, Job is righteous, and Job is blessed, because Job has not been forced to make the distinction between the giver and the gift, Job has never been put in a situation where he's ever going to have to say, my God is enough, not the blessings that come from him. Job has never been put in a situation where he's had to say, I'm not interested in God for the money, for the peace, for the love, the patience, and the kindness. I'm interested in God because I need to know God. And so Satan says, he's not going to, he's not going to honor you because he's never been confronted where he's had to choose between the the giver and the gifts, between the blessings and the blessor. So, of course, the Lord gives opportunity. And one of the terrible days in human history happens. Raiders come in and take some, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans take others in verse sixteen. The fire from heaven—that's a fire of God that fell from heaven—is usually refers to one of two kind of things. It's either um, a lightning strike or a, like volcanic ash. So it's quite possible that like a volcano erupted, which is not uncommon in that area, and the volcanic ash, the cloud, fell on his uh, herds and, and killed them all. And a giant, you know, probably windstorm comes out of the the east out of the desert there and strikes the house and the house collapses and kills everyone. And in verse 20 for the first time ever Job is confronted with the real the real point of the entire book of Job. If I'm forced to choose between the giver and the gifts, which will I choose? If I'm forced to choose between God and his perceived blessings, which one will I choose? Is God enough for me? He tears his robe in grief, shaves his head in grief, falls on the ground and worships, which would have been, again, spectacular. And gives in verse 21, which I think is probably one of the most poetic and beautiful sentences ever, or uh, you know, f- uh, responses ever uttered by humanity. Naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I will return to the grave. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He, no, no equivocation, clarity. Uh, you take everything away from me. I still love God. The giver is that which is important to me. And you think, whew, boy, Job made it. Ha, all right. And the story's not done, unfortunately. God again opens court to uh, his servants, to the angels, and the devil comes with, and the same conversation happens. Where have you been? Well, I've been out and about here and there, this nebulous answer. And the Lord responds to Satan and says, here, look, I'm going to rejoice in my child again. You gave him the hard bit. You gave him the hard life, and he handled it beautifully. He responded marvelously, and man, Job did. And Satan responds with, a, again, an easy accusation. And honestly, this is, again, that realism mixed with cynicism. And what he responds with is, yes, but people at their core are selfish, more so than they're willing to admit. And at the end of the day, people don't want to admit it, but they will choose their own skin over someone else's. So look, God, you took away all of his possessions but you didn't actually ever take away his own skin. And you know what? His children died, and that's terrible, but it didn't cost him anything. They were his kids, but they weren't him. Maybe Job is just a selfish jerk, and even though the loss of his 10 precious children, it didn't cost him anything. And God says, well, let's answer your accusation and gives him permission and Satan strikes him with some terrible, terrible skin disease to the point where most likely the town throws him out into the garbage heap, where he sits in the garbage heap and has his skin, as best we can tell, rots off. He has to take a a piece of uh, pottery with a sharp edge to scratch it because it itches so badly and he doesn't have a mechanism for dealing with it. And his, his wife shows up here to kind of in some way be the voice of reason. And it's like, what are you doing? Just curse God and die. End it. This is terrible. And Job, again, does marvelously, comes a half step short of calling her an idiot. You sound like the foolish women that talk. I don't know who those foolish women are, but I know it's an insult to his wife. We have received blessing from God. How will we now complain when we receive hardship? That's probably the better uh, reading disaster. And God clearly explains at the end of verse 10, and so far Job has not sinned in his response at all. And it's been intriguing the, the flow of the passage very quickly is this, that God's rejoicing in the, the, the tiniest little victories of his people. The devil is accusing with even realism mixed with cynicism, damning and judging his people, uh, being more cynical, being more critical than God is, which unfortunately sometimes sounds like us. All building to the kind of decision framework that, that Job's going to have to wrestle through. Uh, Do I love the gifts or the giver? And again, the hard part here is he has no knowledge of this conversation taking place in heaven. So it's not like he has, oh, well, God's doing something. Oh, well, God's at work. Oh, this is just Satan. He he has no knowledge. He just knows that in one day his world ended and then just shortly after his health ended. Is God enough enough? And I will say, again, providentially unplanned, I had this sermon series picked out months ago. But here in the midst of this uh, Corona apocalypse or whatever we're in, where we've some of us been out of work for weeks and life is different and our 401Ks have suffered and we haven't been able to go out to eat and we've been forced to kind of confront a lifestyle that we've not normally lived with. I think it's been marvelous to force us to contemplate really and truly am I more excited about the gift or the giver? Am I more excited about the blessings that God gives or the God who gives them? How much do you miss being in His presence with His people? How much does the idea of of losing everything but still having him, how much does that idea fill you with dread or fill you with hope? You see, the reason why I push on this is I suspect that the American church has drunk more deeply of the well of the prosperity gospel than we realize And for most of us, I think implicitly, subconsciously in the back of our mind, I think we genuinely believe that the mark of God's presence is his blessing and wealth and riches. And we're actually, I genuinely believe most of us in our hearts are not interested in being with him. We're interested in what he gives us. And the problem with that is that is the exact accusation that Satan makes. And just as a general rule of thumb, anytime time I act the way that the devil wants me to act, it's probably not a good thing. Just a general rule of thumb. If, if he's wanting you to do that, don't do that thing. And it might be a, an appropriate thing for us to contemplate even the weaknesses in our own heart that we have fallen in love with God's gifts instead of the God who gives them. Father in heaven, forgive us. Forgive us that though you are so marvelous and your son and your spirit are the greatest gifts ever, that we have fallen in such love with wealth and fame and pleasure and things that satisfy in this life, but not in the life to come. Oh God, forgive us. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.